0: Welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner, Walid Amar, and Pradeep Dasigi. Okay, today our guest is Fernando Pereira. Fernando is a distinguished engineer and vice president, heading NLP research among other areas at Google Research. Welcome to the program, Fernando.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, it's kind of interesting to have this uh, conversation. We had planned it for quite a while, and then uh, schedules interfered. But uh, and uh, now we have to do it remotely, whether we want it or not. So it's a uh, it's a new world for all of us. And uh, trying to make sure that our audio equipment works reasonably for uh, so that we can do our work and interact with each other uh, professionally as before. So it's a uh, yeah. Uh, it's a new normal, at least and uh, for a while.
0: Yeah, it is surprising how much work we can get done, even with all these
1: constraints. Yeah, yes, that's right. I've been uh, in a, a video conferences since 7 a.m. One of the things I've been doing since uh, we have had uh, our restrictions for working at home and so on is is having these uh, virtual coffee times with the members of my team across the world. So I have a couple of those uh, at 7 a.m. and then I have uh, others at 11 a.m during the work week so that we can uh, just chat about you know what's going on you know how we're we feeling about uh, this situation any new interesting ideas projects so it's just sort of a very informal thing that we've been doing which has been a lot of fun actually and i'll continue it after this is over because my our team being distributed all over the world makes it uh, really difficult to keep in touch with uh, you know the diverse team that we have
0: Totally. Well, speaking of the size of uh, of the, your team, I wanted, uh, my first question for you is, you've been at Google for 12 years now. How did the research organization evolve over these years?
1: Yeah, so I came to Google a bit over 12 years ago, and my hypothesis when I considered coming over was uh, natural language technology, NLP technology, had been making uh, quite a bit of progress through the use of statistical methods and machine learning. And this was a time to try to see how it could help on a user-facing role in a big way, which is particularly in search. How can we understand what users are looking for better, what documents contain better so that we can provide better search results? So that was the ambition. It was a bit crazy to think about it because the techniques we had 12, 13 years ago were very primitive compared to what we have today. But yet I thought that was, it there was a time to try to do this. Now at the time, uh, search was essentially done through information retrieval techniques, very successfully, but basically not de- uh, relying so much on the, the actual structure of a query, say, but mainly on the keywords on the unigrams and bigrams in that query and different ranking functions that took into account frequency, inverse document frequency, all these usual things that people in IR had developed very successfully. And so it, it took quite a while to, for us to figure out where we could have initial impact by using the state of the art in um, natural language processing in particular, in things like part-of-speech tagging and dependency parsing to try to get a bit more of the structure of queries and uh how they relate to documents so there were a bunch of experiments and false starts and it, uh but uh we still got enough traction in the first few years that it gave us confidence that we could continue to build the effort and the, and the, gave confidence to those of us those that provided the the resources to continue to grow the teams and and we continue to do more interesting work over time that has had very large impact on you know, on search and other products, and uh, and this is the natural language side. I also man I've managed a number of large scale machine learning projects over the years and a variety of other things. But I think we should focus here is on the on the natural language side. So the difference, I mean, the big difference is that we started with a really small team, and we have a much much larger, much more uh, distributed team now, working on a wider, much wider range of questions. I, th- you know, like with everybody, the development of uh, deep learning methods using, you know, with, uh, you know, the availability of the computation has made a big difference to how fast we can move and how much impact we can have. So, you know, that's kind of the story of our progress from making certain you know small improvements for instance in query processing or multilingual query proce- you know uh, processing in particular uh, international you know ways to internationalize different systems to being able to uh, deliver major changes in how uh, search does ranking and question answering that you know so it's going to start from incremental valuable improvements to pretty radical changes of how the the whole machinery operates.
0: Would you say that the ability for uh, the research org to grow within Google had uh, something, had more to do with how successful it has been in impacting the products or in in, like actually attracting the right talent? It's a combination. I think this is basically
1: a a kind of feedback, positive feedback, right? So if you have are successful in certain in certain areas then naturally there's uh, more ability to reach to to have the kinds of conversations and this about resources that lead to the potential to create for instance uh, longer term research efforts and to hire uh researchers who uh, may be looking at working on longer term problems and so have build a on a foundation that is, to some extent, applied, but still uh, looking, uh, trying to, you know, develop the state of the art to one where we have a fairly substantial efforts to really uh, do longer term work that is not directly tied to product, but is still always motivated. It's always motivated by questions like, "Hey, we are." Why do I? Why am I at Google? Well, I, I am at Google because I care about under, understanding what users want to accomplish through, say, a search query, because I see that as a sort of a, the ultimate demonstration of language understanding is when we can actually answer correctly, accurately, in a timely manner the varied information needs of users across in hundreds of different languages. That's when we'll we'll know we have sort of arrived. We are not there yet by any means. So uh, that big goal then connects to all of the research that we do, both, you know, in the connects effectively to a lot of the research that people do outside Google. And, and that's why we can have a, a really healthy relationship between our work and work going on in the academic world.
0: So you mentioned contributing to products, but also longer term uh, research. So what are the different ways you consider to be kind of like the different kinds of impact that research uh, teams at Google
1: achieve? Well, it's, I think that there are two main ones. One, I, And then there are lots of di- different details, but at one level, can we really rethink how we do major parts of our the user-facing products we have, whether it is in say advancing machine translation or uh, doing better question answering, contributions to those efforts that are significant, measurable are one way uh, that our impact is is measured. On the other hand, creating new new approaches, you know, developing new models, new ways of uh, new algorithms that we publish is another form of impact in ideally the two m- meet somewhere where when we are super successful and we are not always super successful but when we are we have something that's both a substantial research contribution and something that changes how our products operate for the better
0: yeah that makes sense do you find often some friction between these two goals like for example re- filing patents or whether or not to open source a certain project
1: well i wouldn't say conflict i think we have to be thoughtful about clearly i mean we are part of a company that is we would like to be successful and continue to develop the best possible products in the long run so so we have to protect its business interests but on the other hand we understand that the conversation with the outside world and the, in particular researchers, uh, students, uh, even other companies is really important. So we try to maximize the communication bandwidth, but we also have to be very careful about certain areas where we are dealing with sort of ethical or or privacy matters. So it's one thing to develop a new, say, question answering algorithm is a very different It requires a lot more thought to for instance the release a data set like we did with natural questions and that required extreme care to ensure that the data we released which is based on that in actual user queries protects user privacy and protect it's compliant with all the applicable policies so the degree to which we can be open about what we do depends to some extent to not just to business interests, but also ethical and, uh, you know, privacy and re- uh, regulatory requirements.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So I would like to move on to another question about, like, planning research. So, you know, like, top-down planning sometimes makes sense in certain, in, in like, in certain products. In research, do you consider top-down, like, how, how do you see t- the difference between top-down planning and bottom-up? How do they, how can they go hand-in-hand?
1: Well, so, so I think that this goes back to the question, why are we at Google, right? Or I, we are here because I, I think ultimately you want to care about the mission of the the place you are in. If you are in academia, you care about the education. You should care about the educational mission. You should care about training students, about creating knowledge and uh, expanding it. If you are at Google, you should also care about the fundamental mission, which is organize the world's information, make it accessible and useful to everybody. So, if you care about that mission, that's the main, bot- top down drive we have right it's think about that mission think about the problems that it brings up for instance problems in language understanding for user queries uh, for document understanding problems of uh, modeling trust in information so not all you know sources of information are equally attested has equal support in a situation like the present situation with covid19 clearly it's extremely important that we uh, give People the best possible health information. All of these questions are extremely hard natural language understanding matters, but they also scientifically extremely interesting. So there is no contradiction there, and. Uh, if most of our work, our research work is driven by those high level goals, then even though people might have very diverse ways of approaching the problems, we'll have enough options to have success- impact. Some of those ideas will pay off and they will become Ideas we can engineer into our products, and uh, and that I think is the, the sort of the ideal state of our research enterprise is to have these these very high level goals, and then this way of t- turning the, the individual creativity of researchers and uh, connecting it to these goals. And that's my job. My I, you know my job, the job of the my leadership team is to to try to draw those connections, identify the opportunities, help researchers find the path to success within this very broad framing, organizational goals that are tied to the Google's mission.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. And this has been my experience at, at Google so far. <laughs> so I would like to switch uh, to, instead of like focusing on Google research, let's pretend you, that you have a friend who's starting a successful tech company, just finished raising $30 million in a Series A fund, something like Quora or Stack Overflow a few years ago, just for a frame of reference.
1: Uh Yeah.
0: Now, this friend, her employees have been trying to catch up with research and like implement that relevant methods. But she's starting to think about growing a research team to help ensure the long-term success of the company. So what criteria would you use to assess if the company is ready to have to invest in a research team?
1: So actually I have done this. In, a, in a specific cases, I have friends who have started companies and I have advised them in this specific way. I think the advice I give is think of the problems you're trying to solve. Not, don't think about, oh, should I have a research team or not? You should think about what problem do I need to solve that, I, that my current engineering team is struggling with? And what is the kind of expertise that is most likely to help us advance that or find alternatives to that, you know, maybe it's not necessary to solve that particular problem, but find ways around that problem. Do I need someone who, who has a different expertise, say, in a multilingual language processing or a different expertise in machi- in applied machine learning. That's, I think, the way to approach this. The approach is not, oh, I need a research team. Let's go, find and go and find some researchers that happen to be available. You have to find people who are motivated to come and solve the problems that you have. They have to be motivated by the mission of the company, by the vision of where the company is trying to go, and have the right capa- you know, experience, the right uh, mindset to come and help you solve those problems. And it could be that the solutions they'll come up with are not necessarily cutting edge state of the art, because very often the, what the best thing a researcher can do for a, an engineering and product team is to know very well the solutions of 10 years ago that are very practical now. This is actually one challenge of our current AI education, in uh, NLP education, is people are so fixated on the last three years of research and the state-of-the-art rates that often they, they don't know much of what was done in the past that could be very relevant. One example I'll give you is that there are many problems that uh, people face that have to do, essentially estimating uncertainty. And yet, most of the students that we we see an interview that have not done a graphical models uh, graduate class, or any kind, they don't actually have a strong probability background. Which ten years ago, of course, everybody did. So, in a situation like this, you might say, "Oh, I what I really need." uh, Let me give you an example. Suppose that I am a core type company, a Stack Overflow, and. I need to have some uh, uh, crowdsourced data and I need to uh, deal with inter-annotator agreement and uh, model the process of annotation and uh, annotator biases and so on. How do I do that? I need to actually go get someone who understands Probabilistic models, and think of maybe think of the problem as a as a latent variable model where there is some sort of a true label that these people are approximating, and the, each individual has some false positive or false negative rate, and which has to be estimated. And you will naturally, to a problem like that, get into a bit, either. You know, if you just estimating, getting a point estimate to an EM type algorithm, or if you kind of have some Bayesian background, you might do something maybe even a bit better using Bayesian modeling of the situation. But that's what you would need for that case, right? But yet, if we just say, I will go and hire some fashionable researcher, they might not have that skill to solve the problem that you really care about.
0: Yeah, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. That also answers, like, who would you want to hire? Like, you you look for the people who would actually be equipped to answer these questions that you're struggling with.
1: Yeah, that can... I mean, I have my interview questions made, right? You know, I say, hey, here, I have this problem. Work, walk me through approaches to addressing it. And you're not going to get a solution, but you get the thinking process. Whether those people are senior researchers or junior researchers, we don't know. I mean, you have to focus on the problem you're trying to solve, not on this notion of, oh, I need a research team, like uh, essentially as some kind of a, a badge of honor or something.
0: So now, a few years later, your friend managed to like, hire the right people, make progress and uh, the, the couple of researchers uh, she hired kept like the team kept growing until it's maybe it's like 20 people like maybe half of them are researchers half are engineers working together on solving you know the problems that matter for the company but you know like it's kind of inevitable if you're hiring researchers that they would be also interested in maintaining you know a strong publication record, and maybe thinking about problems that are not directly related to what, like the no, it's not necessarily the top priority for the company. I think this often happens in research groups. How do you balance between the interests of researchers and the interests of the company?
1: So the first thing to keep in mind is that is this is a problem about recruit. You know, talking about essentially a recruiting problem to start with, which is. If I have this, if this problem becomes a real issue, this this mismatch between the researcher's interests and uh, the needs of the company, then you you probably did something a little bit wrong in hiring, right? You know clearly you have to you have to understand that there's a variety of motivations among people, and you need a mix, and you want to have a mix of talent and the diversity of talent, and some people are going to be. A little bit more motivated by one type of incentive and one kind type of of uh, work, and others by others. But in the on average, you should have a collection of people in your team that are overall aligned with the, the direction you need to go in, that you believe is the direction of the company. So clearly, with respect to publication record, I would say. There's a difference between publishing some, uh, continue to publish incremental results, you know, again, another epsilon in the state of the art of benchmark versus making a big change on how people think about the problem. And what I constantly have these conversations is it's quality, not quantity. When I was a, you know, when when I was a professor, and I had this conversation with my students as well. And then when the conference deadline, the ACL deadline was approaching, or the ICML deadline, you know, you had everybody trying to push this new result or this paper out. And I I often served as a sort of a bit of a f- a filter and the friction say, look, this is not ready. I don't want, you could if you want to send this, don't put my name on it, basically. <laughs> Even that if I had contributed. And the reason is because I, I think that the incentives in the in the, the current academic or research culture are distorting of not just what's valuable to a company, but what's valuable to society and science in general. And so actually I think that you think carefully about what's really valuable, there is less of a conflict between publishing really top work and also achieving high impact results than people think. It's just, I think it's a false opposition.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing this up. With, uh this pro- like problem of you uh, know like like how valuable are the research that we publish, and like how significant is the result needs to be needs before we publish it, and the incentives in academia is is a really important one. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how to improve the current, you know, the current. Uh, <laughs> how, yeah, how do I say?
1: Well, I I don't know. I I was having a conversation earlier today about this. So. It's it's a very hard mechanism design problem. I have tried to address it locally by having multiple layers of uh, discussion and uh, you know constructive criticism about lines of work and about. I mean, in the end, this is a distributed problem. I mean, it's not there's not going to be a law that from above that says research should be done this way, right? I think that. In the end, it's people like me and people, the senior people in my team, and in uh, in senior people in other, in the uh, different academic roles who have some influence on how we carry out this activity and try to incentivize really transformational work. Doesn't mean, look, not everything succeeds, right? That's okay. But I think that, you know, running after and incremental gains. And that's true, by the way, on the product side as well. One of the things I keep telling people often is, you quit while you are ahead. If you are working on a project which has had a big success, but now the incremental successes are smaller and smaller because there's diminishing returns in that particular technique, then before you really start slowing down, the time to come up with the next thing to do. And that's true in, in research, that's true in, uh, and that's, that's true in uh, product impact as well. The greatest value of a research team is to be able to jump to a n- new ideas that could have much greater leverage than the ideas that you're working on now. And, but you can only do that if you are willing to abandon something that's still yielding results uh, before it's completely exhausted. So that that is balancing that whether it's on the science side or in the product impact side, is I think the critical part of the certainly the job I I, I do and uh, and I'm not saying that I have a, a magic recipe, but I say that this is something that I'm always paying attention to. This diminishing returns effect that happens across all areas of science and engineering.
0: Yeah, I definitely remember uh, having discussions with Matt and other people at AI2 on, on this topic. And like one consensus I feel is that it's a lot easier to do this with a more senior person or like someone who is who ha- finished their degree, maybe have been already like out of their PhD for a few years. And and like they can just like this is the feeling that as a student, as a PhD student, there is more of a rush to publish because you are going to be compared to other people and people who are hiring or looking for like easy ways of evaluating candidates will always be looking for like easy metrics to look at, like number of papers, things like this. Okay. So
1: actually, you towards I am looking at your set of questions, right? And and uh, you talk lower, towards the end about diversity and inclusion. And I think what you just said is extremely deeply connected with our lack of diversity and in, uh, lack of inclusion. I think that the sort of being counting approach to recruiting and to valuing people discounts the value of people with diverse experiences that have had different career paths that maybe were trained in a different discipline. And as a result, it limits our ability to find creativity, innovation. Alternative perspectives outside the our comfort zone, the comfort zone of you know just looking. Oh, you did everything by the book. You got your end papers in ACL and your M papers in Europe, so you are a good person. I mean, which is I think is extremely destructive to the health and well being of our field. Wind back to when I was a when I was a professor at Penn and a department chair. And one of the things that I observed when I started there with respect to diversity in the undergraduate program is exactly this. Everybody that was allowed into the program tended to be exactly the same kind of person that had had a computer since they were 8 year old, And they tended to be male. They tended to be well-off. They tended to be to, from certain locations in the United States. And that was very destructive. You had sort of a sort of a monolithic view of what is success in computer science. And when I started programs in the department to open doors for people with different backgrounds, different experiences to, uh, to discover whether they actually are as excited about the field. And that and that what was quite successful. We increased diversity in our program very substantially. And the, the main thing was not assume that the way that I am is the way that everybody should be. And that's true about the whole process of hiring in our organizations. I don't need to just have another machine learning person. For instance, I need to have linguists. I have all people that have a strong linguistics background. And guess what? They, they tend to be more diverse than your computer science, your typical computer scientist, and so on and so forth. I mean, so bringing from the social sciences, bringing from the life sciences, I mean, they're the one of the things that we have been trying to do with our AI resident program is to bring people from different areas, from life sciences, from social science, from economics, from physics, and again, it's a more varied, more diverse set of uh, talent than we we'll get if we just look at the, the standard computer science pipeline.
0: Yeah, it's probably going to be a number of years before that culture, this culture, becomes more, uh, you know, pop- like common in other places as well, and uh, people start feeling.
1: So the reality is that this is something I fight constantly. I've had no many conversations about rec- hiring and about evaluating candidates that always the kind, oh, but X does not have as many papers as Y. And the one question might be, well, they may have different career trajectory. Maybe they had some... Uh, issues in their life that were got in the way of of of, uh, being able to meet every single ACL deadline. Let's look at what the fundamental information we have about their talent and about their creativity, about their their interest in solving real problems. And you often find, if you look at it, not from the point of view of, did you kind of tick these various checkboxes, but rather did he, do you bring a new perspective to what we need to do? Because we don't have any problem in hiring more people like the people we have already. But that's not really where it's at. Where it's at is to hire new people, more people. When we hire, hire people that are different, that are fundamentally different, that have other dimension, uh, have a, a critical look at what we do, that can't change
0: for the better what we do. So say you are a person who is screening resumes for an internship or for a new research scientist or whatever. I've been in this position recently. What recommendations do you have for someone who is doing this, given that basically all you have is a resume? How do you get the information that you're talking about? Do you have any advice?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I I have not been doing that myself, so I I, I cannot give you a sort of a, a procedural answer. What I will what you I'll ask you is, for instance, does this person have a life experience, work experience, for instance, or academic experience that is different in interesting ways from what we have already and adds a dimension? For instance, someone was like, let's give say, look at a resume and say maybe it's not someone who has a computer science degree, but they were a field linguist in West Africa. That would wake me. I would immediately say, whoa, this is very interesting. This is maybe someone who will have a much better perspective on how we think about uh, different languages and dialects in our products and so on and so forth. I mean, you have to look at the specific cases. You cannot have some kind of general recipe, but you have to think of it from the point perspective of that when you build something like a search engine, you're building something for, you know, hopefully from the greatest number of people, and therefore, they have different needs, different uh, experiences, different expectations. If you only have a very narrow range of people in your team, you're going to forget not ask these questions, for instance, about different uh, dialectal variation areas like, you know, code switching, like the fact that most people are multilingual outside the United States. <laughs> and in fact, in the United States, there are a lot more multilingual people than people think about and so all of these factors, you know, if you go at at the screening resumes with an open mind, you'll see these interesting, different people in that with different experiences. You and you will want to interview them. You don't, you know, clearly you want them to be able to work in your environment reasonably well. But you know, if they don't necessarily know the fine. All the fine points of uh, of sorting algorithms—that's that's not here or not there, right? It's uh, we have enough of those people, but someone who is really understands, uh, you know, for instance, you know, that has a sociolinguistics background or or a, a sort of neuroscience background could be incredibly illuminating to your to work you do. And guess what? They might well be different in in their backgrounds in ways that are also very interesting from the point of view of the the dynamics of your organization so i cannot say a specific recipe but this is the way that what i recommend i constantly tell in fact we changed our hiring guidelines for research scientists i pushed for this and then we did it a few years ago to get away from the idea that all research scientists have to be computer scientists and I say no. I, I, you know, I could be a research linguist. It could be a research biologist. We need these people, depending on the goals we have for for a particular team, for a particular project. You need a wide div- diversity of talent. And uh, for instance, in you know, we have an uh, intern, long term intern in our team, who's a biologist by training, and she's working on our biomedical information retrieval with uh, Brian McDonald and uh, and Keith Hall and others, and they. The, that's a very important role for us. Is have actually someone who understands the domain, and has this can learn where they can learn more about the say the machine learning and the natural language understanding, and we can learn more about what matters from from uh, people doing my biomedical research. So that that uh, two way street is what I'm trying we're trying to build. Yeah, that's
0: good advice. I guess it. I feel like it's easy in a small company where you're the one who is doing research and screening resumes to latch on to like easy signals, but that can be pretty damaging. It's good to hear these reminders.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I can only do the job of try to persuade, try to nudge people in this direction. I, we're not perfect by any means. We we have, it's easy to fall into the, because you are in a hurry and you, you have lots of resumes to look at. So you're easy to fall into these sort of standard patterns. Part of the job of research manager is to make research more interesting by kind of getting in the way of routine, asking questions, you know, why are we doing it still this way? Whether it's the science or the engineering or the recruiting or the, you know, all of these things have to be challenged in a positive way, but they have to be challenged. So that's, I mean, my response to this question about diversity inclusion is not I mean, unfortunately, is not something I can give some fantastic metrics on. It's just a question of, I mean, my personal experience, both as as a faculty member before and now as an as a in industry research manager, is, is you have to challenge your own assumptions about what's important. And one of them is... What's important is all of us did this fir- the same deep learning course in the same uh, top ten universities.
0: Okay, so um, I would like to pick your mind on uh, like the collaboration styles between research groups and product groups. So there are kind of like two like common ways of doing this. Is the first like in some research groups, the researchers would develop some method as inspired by certain problems that matter to the company. Implement prototypes, show results in some academic data sets, and only then collaborate and reach out to product teams who will assess whether this is useful for them or not. And oftentimes this means like re-implementing the library or the method to be more consistent with the, with the existing code base. Another like, way is to actually embed research groups in, in, within the engineering teams and like work side by side to develop these methods. And become like basically you don't need to re-implement anything at the end. Do you see like what are your thoughts on this pros and cons, or if you have a preference?
1: Well, it really depends on the type of problem. I mean, I think we've been very successful. And in fact, most of the biggest successes have been when the research results are in a form that are kind of easy to Communicate and to collaborate on with a product team. If the notion of, oh, here's research, they build a prototype, and now there's some kind of a set of developers in a product that's going to take the prototype and rewrite it from scratch, that model, I've not seen it succeed much at Google. I think it doesn't mean that the researchers are not independent, they are, but I think that the successful efforts always involve one or more of the researchers being very engaged in the collaboration at the level of we sharing the code, we doing the experiments together, we measuring, looking at the results together. You teach me what's important from a product point of view. I teach you what I've learned about different ways of modeling this problem. So, because otherwise you get off, one of the failure mode I've observed is someone will ask a research, a product group, oh, you have such and such a problem. Let's say a spam classification problem, an example I give. And uh, what do you want? Oh, I want say 95% precision at 80% recall. Just making up some numbers. And... Researcher goes away, trains a model on some of the data. Maybe there's some gold label data and, oh, oh, I can get this. But then product team takes the model and retrains it on the real data they have. And the quality is much worse. Oh, wait a minute, why is that? Oh, except the fact is that actually you don't have much gold label data. Most of your label data is noisy because the humans who are labeling it are in a hurry and or, this, or get tired and they make mistakes. Oh, you didn't tell me that. Well, I mean, clearly this is not going to end up well, right? Because I did all my work, I got the numbers you told me and now you're telling me that my work doesn't matter. This is a a fatal mode that is not uncommon and that we try to avoid by asking the question, what is the real problem you're trying to solve? It's not to get the classifier with certain precision recall. You should have a system that is embedded in a product that is going to use the information that the product can collect. It might be noisy labels, for example. So actually the problem of creating something that handles noisy labels is much more interesting. It's actually from a research point of view, it's a much more challenging one and one where the researcher can learn a lot from practice. So creating those early relationships and those early conversations is what Avoids the kind of failure that I described, it also makes the research much more interesting. So that's the the model that I, I try to encourage. That's the model that we've succeeded. All our biggest successes have all been in that, under that model.
0: Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. I think we're almost out of time. So I wanted to ask if you have any final remarks or advice you'd like to share with researchers or research managers.
1: Well, here's this for, mostly for researchers who are wondering, should I consider a, a role in industry, whether in a you know, small company, in a startup or in a large company? I, and I think the answer is, you shouldn't think of it as a better paid academic job. I think that's a, a very self-defeating way of proceeding, even though it might be more profitable in short runs. So I think people should think of, of a role as what are the problems that this company is trying to solve? Are these problems I care about? Does it have a f- a function that I I share a function in society that I am aligned with, and if so, and if I think that I can contribute to solving those problems and creating those results that will be a value in the ways that my own value system operates, then that's where I should go in this direction, as opposed to, you know, the more natural for someone who's had a, a graduate degree to continue to be in academia. But that's tr- even true as for academics. If someone wants to be in academia, but then doesn't care about teaching, it's again a, a misalignment of values that is problematic. So do the, decide to do the research and join the organization that aligns with your values and what you're looking for in your future. Don't decide it on the basis of, oh, they have a big research group, so I want to join because there's all these successful people there. That's not a, a, lo- a good long-term recipe for, for well-being and for impact and you know, such satisfaction in your career. Do something that you feel really committed to as, in terms of uh, the, your curiosity, your personal values, your, where you think you can have, make a difference.
0: Yeah and honestly like uh, we're very fortunate in this in NLP and also computer science at large uh, in being in having many choices so i think i think we do have a lot of choices to make and uh, we can align it so that we uh, like we're, we're pursuing the thing that we actually cares about care about
1: well thank you for talking to me i uh, hope that the recording is acceptable to your to your podcast i look forward just to seeing it
0: yeah thank you so much This was fun